Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. If you're able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But unto the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure of the time then present, in which we were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once to the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For with the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. Uh, we thank you for what you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for how you're providing for us. You're providing for our church, Lord. Please be with me. Uh, Lord, please flow the, your message through me, Lord. Please control my lips, my thoughts, my tongue, Lord. Please help me be that conduit of your message. Uh, there's things you want me to skip. Help me to my eyes just not see those in my notes, Lord. The things you want me to add, uh, give me those words and just help me add those words to the message this morning, Lord. Lord, again, please be with us in this service. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. The title of our message this morning is Covenant and Conscience. Covenant and Conscience. Uh, we have been going at it for almost a year in the book of Hebrews, and we are in chapter 9. So I believe we will finish this year, but we do have the Hall of Faith to work through yet coming up. So we're probably in that for a while as well. So I believe we will finish this year, uh, but there's just so much in Hebrews, and there's so much that lends you to going back into the Old Testament for a while when you're in the book of Hebrews. So covenant and conscience. Now the writer of Hebrews has previously stated in, in Hebrews 8.13, and that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old uh, is ready to vanish away. The old covenant was ready to vanish away, yet the writer of Hebrews is anxious to show that it was given by God uh, for the appointed time for blessing and, and for instruction. It also possessed ordinances of divine service, that is divine service connected with what was given by God, uh, instituted by God, sanctioned by God as law among Israel. Uh, but, and here we go into why it needed to pass away, or it was determined to pass away, is that it was a worldly sanctuary. See in verse 1, 
That is, it was visible and tangible. It was uh, according to this present world, built with materials belonging to the earthly creation. So it needed to eventually pass away. So there was a need for something new. There was a need for God to do something new. And God took away the old, and so we could have the new. And along with that new covenant, we now have the privilege of heavenly worship. We now are able to worship in spirit and in truth. When the sanctuary of the old covenant, they had the earthly worship, the earthly sanctuary. Now the new covenant, we have that heavenly worship. John 4, 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. So now we can worship God in spirit. We can worship God in truth. We can worship at that heavenly worship with God. Uh, we worship in spirit in the heavenly sanctuary now with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we worship in truth. We worship by the word of truth. A God's precious, holy, written word, the truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. So by the destruction of the temple, though, in 70 AD, God declared to the whole world in a very public and dramatic way, in that solemn language of judgment, what he revealed to us saints of old, that during the times of the Gentiles, that old covenant is gone, we're under the new covenant, and Jews and Gentiles alike will be united under the new covenant. And this new body of believers will possess in substance what Israel only had in shadows, in pictures, and and in perfect emblems of, of, of things. But will possess in substance through the death of Christ, by the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, uh, will have that substance. We'll be able to participate and have the privilege of being in the new covenant. Now the writer of Hebrews begins uh, a comparison uh, between the old covenant and the saving power of the new covenant with a brief summary in verses 1 to 5 of the layout and furnishings of the wilderness tabernacle. Look in verse 5, he says, of which we cannot now speak particularly, or we cannot discuss these details these in details now, or, or perhaps we don't need to discuss these details now, because in reality, those that he was speaking to, these Hebrew Christians, would have, had a, a, would have been well acquainted with that desert sanctuary. They would have had the knowledge. They would have understood it. So you didn't really need to speak particularly. didn't really need to get into detail with them. Uh, but we are not like them. We could use some detail. We could use some some more information about that to understand what he's getting at. We could use some information, uh, some background information about the tabernacle. We could we could use a little bit of detail to help us understand the points he's trying to make for us in our passage. So, the tabernacle. Actually, we have some slides this morning. That's a, a, a rendering of the tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle. Uh, Israel's tabernacle was a portable tent shrine that was that was always placed at the geographical center or heart of Israel, uh, with all the tribes kept around it in a designated orderly fashion. Approaching a tabernacle, one would see the white lined walls of the court of the tabernacle, which formed the enclosure. It was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, and that uniform whiteness was just to broadcast the holiness of its function. The holiness of God, the holiness of its function. Um, Adolf Safer uh, was born in September 26, 1831 in Budapest and died April 4, 1891 in England. He was a Hungarian Jew who converted to Christianity, became a Jewish Presbyterian minister. In 1843, he and his family accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
through a Jewish outreach effort by the Church of Scotland. Uh, he wrote from his unique perspective of having grown up in Judaism. Uh, he wrote a commentary in a book of Hebrews. It's in two volumes. I think it was last printed in the 30s or 40s, and I've got both volumes, and it's really deep. It's really rich, and I haven't really quoted from it yet in our study of Hebrews just because he, he gets way detailed and, and really deep in his, in his observations. But this, this message, I, he has one good quote I think will be very well for me to go ahead and read that for our message this morning. He wrote concerning this, Jesus is king and has all power in heaven and on earth. It is true that in the old dispensation there were symbols. They were not man-invented but God-given. They descended from heaven. They derived their authority from God. They originated in the divine mind. They were framed by him who see at the end from the beginning. These symbols were to teach, to signify, to illustrate spiritual truths. The divine word, the teaching of the prophets, and the very instinct of the godly continually pointed away from the symbol to the reality. So pointed away from that to the reality, to the heavenly sanctuary, to the worship of the broken and contrite heart. And last of all, they were known to be temporary. The star in the moonlight to guide and cheer the faithful who waited for the sunrise and the promised Redemption. So everything about that pointed away from that and pointed to the coming reality that would come in, come in the flesh, the coming reality. That was symbols of pictures that pointed to what would come. If you look at me again at verses 2 to 5 of Hebrews chapter 9. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded in the, tab, in the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Or, there, or we're not going to talk about it in detail, but we're going to look at it in a little bit of detail. So that altar of burnt offering, I think we have our next slide for that, that altar of burnt offering. When a worshiper entered the tabernacle, he would enter first to the courtyard, which upon entering, he would immediately be in front of that. He would walk in and he would be in front of the altar burnt offering, which was a large bronze altar with a horn in each of its four corners to which the offerings could be tied. So they bring their burnt offerings, they'd tie it, hang it into the fire there. Uh, this was as far as most Israelites could ever come. They could come up to that and that was it. They could go no further. They go beyond that, one had to be a Levite and one had to be a priest. So this is where the non-priest Israelite would lay his hand on the sin offering. Leviticus 1.4, he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Leviticus 1.4, this is where that took place right there. This is where he put his hand upon the sin offering. Now let's go to the next one, the bronze laver. Behind the altar and just a little bit to the right stood the bronze laver. Uh, a wash basin for the exclusive use of the priests, which, if neglected, imperiled their lives. Exodus 30, 20-21, When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, the burnt offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generation. They had to wash so they die not. But directly behind the laver 
was the tabernacle itself. A flat-roofed oblong tent, 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, was covered in three layers. The first consisted of that gorgeous woven tapestries of blue, purple, scarlet, and white linen. That inside the tabernacle it was divided into two rooms by an ornate veil woven of the same colors along with gold and embroidered with cherubim. This veil was supported by four golden columns set on silver bases. Now the first outer room was called the holy place and the second inner room was the most holy or the holy of holies. So the holy place. The writer of Hebrews, that, set, that veil right there, it's not a, probably something different but something that's similar to that would separate the holy place from the holy of holies. Uh, the writer of Hebrews briefly describes these rooms. Uh, the first room, he says in verse 2, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. The lampstand was made of solid gold with three, breech, three branches springing from either side and each of its seven branches uh, supporting a flower-shaped lamp holder. Exodus chapter 25, 31 to 32. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. And his six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the candlestick out of the one side and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. This is made out of solid gold. Now we go on to the next one, a table of showbread. And this uh, representation is slightly off. Uh, that, that table right there where the showbread is, it's supposed to have a blue cloth on it. But that's as close as I could find. Uh, Numbers 4, 7 says, And upon the table of showbread they shall spread a cloth of blue and put thereon the dishes and the spoons and the bowls and covers to cover with all, and the continual bread shall be thereupon. So the table in the holy place contained 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe. All these furnishings were all profoundly prophetic of Christ. They pointed to him. Uh, they, they spoke of him. They, 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 they foreshadowed him. Uh, the seven-branched candlestick of pure gold speaks of the perfect divine Son who left heaven's glory to become the pure and perfect light of the world and make his people shine as such. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew five fourteen to 16. Let your light so shine before men. We did a little bit of that yesterday. Now we should do that every day. Let our lights shine before men. Now the consecrated bread anticipates Christ's words, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. John six thirty five. Jesus is that true spiritual sustenance his people need. And apart from him, there, there is no life. He's the sustenance we need. Now we're going to move into the Holy of Holies, which is just that back section of there. Uh, the writer of Hebrews briefly talks about the Holy of Holies in verses 3 to 5. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, Wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat. And you could see those cherubims of glory right there. Uh, so the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark of the Covenant just exudes Christ. It just exudes Christ. It is so rich in its picturing of Christ. 
It was at the mercy seat, the, the gold plate covering of the ark upon which the blood of the atonement was sprinkled, that the sins of Israel were propitiated. Romans three twenty four to 25 tells us that is it, that is it in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And 1 John 2, 2 proclaims, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The mercy seat symbolized Christ's work. Moreover, Jesus fleshed out the contents of the ark. He perfectly fulfilled the stone tablets of the law. Deuteronomy 10, 5, And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables on the ark which I had made. And there they be, as the Lord commanded me, in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Those tablets that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus fulfilled those tablets. Uh, He fulfilled the law. He brought to pass something new. He established a new covenant with his blood. Aaron's staff that budded when it confirmed him as high priest is full-flowered in Christ's priesthood. And the manna, again, speaks of Christ, who is the bread of life. The Ark of the Covenant just exudes Christ. It is so rich in picturing Christ. Now we just had just a little bit of detail about that. We could do several messages about all that, but I just wanted to touch on that just a little bit this morning. So now we're going to look at tabernacle worship. I think we need all this information, this, this background, so we can understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us here in our passage. So tabernacle worship. And now that we have just a tiny bit of feel for the, the tabernacle, I think we can now begin to imagine and appreciate its worship. Its daily worship was continual. Worshippers brought their sacrifices to that great bronze altar in the outer courtyard one after another, week by week. Priests were chosen by lot for the high honor of their career to serve just in that first room, the holy place. And we have an example of that process given to us in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went to the temple of the Lord. So they would, these priests, they would, have, they would cast lots and see what they would get to do in the holy place or just in the outer courtyard. And they may only get to serve once in their entire life in that room because there's so many priests. So it was the high honor of their profession, of their priesthood. There were the priests tended to the seven lamps, uh, morning and evening, keeping them full flame. They never went out. They kept them full flame morning and evening. They stoked the coals on the altar of incense upon which they would drop handfuls of incense, filling the room with a cloud, a wonderful aroma cloud. Weekly, they exchanged that bread on the table with fresh bread, and then they were privileged to partake of those sacred loaves. But none even dare to glance into the holy place or the holy of holies on pain of death, Numbers chapter 18. So they can come into the outer section, but those curtains were always kept closed. They couldn't even take a glance into the the holy of holies. Now the regular priest had no access whatsoever beyond the holy place. They had no access whatsoever to the holy of holies except the high priest. But you think about the regular Israelite had no access whatsoever to any of that. They entered the courtyard to that first bronze altar, and that's as far as they could go. They did not have that access, that intimacy, that access to God. It was all blocked off to them. Ministry in the Holy of Holies was a domain of the high priest once a year. 
And that was such a special day. We, we've learned about that in Leviticus chapter 16. During the New Testament times, a high priest underwent rigorous preparation for the day. Seven days before the Day of Atonement, the priest would, let, would leave his house and go stay for seven nights into the te- in the temple. And during that week, he practiced over and over again, day and night, what he would do on the Day of Atonement. Make sure he made no mistake. To make sure it was memorized, muscle memory, his mind, everything. He made sure he just did everything perfectly. And during that whole time, he made sure he, had, he could not become ceremonially unclean at all during that seven-day period. And then on the morning of the Day of Atonement, the high priest offered a burnt offering. If you'll turn with me, please, to Numbers chapter 29. We're going to look at verses 8 to 11. Numbers 29, verses 8 to 11. We're going to read about this day. Numbers 29, verses 8 to 11. God's word says, But ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord for a sweet savor, one young bullock, one ram, and seven lambs of the first year. They shall be unto you without blemish, and their meat offering shall be of flour mingled with oil, three-tenths deal to a bullock, and two-tenths deal to one ram, a several-tenth deal for one lamb throughout the seven lambs, one kid of the goats for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement, and the continual burnt offering, and the meat offering of it, and their drink offerings. So following this, he ritually bathed his entire body. Before he began this process, he ritually bathed his entire body. And in those, we talked about this a few months ago, how, how incredibly beautiful and gorgeous his, his robes were, how colorful they were, and all the meaning behind it. Well, he would take all that off, and he would don just a white, white garment, so white robe, a white turban, a white sash, everything was white, thus symbolizing he was free from defilement. And he, was, he could then proceed into the Holy of Holies. So next, he would place his hands on the head of a bull, selected as a sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of his family. The Hebrews have written down what they think they would have prayed at that point in time. So I'll read you what they think they would have said. He would say something along the lines of, O oh God, I have committed iniquity transgressed and sinned before thee, I and my house, as is written in the law of thy servant. For on this day thou shalt tell him it be made for you to cleanse for you from all your sins. Shall you be clean before the Lord? And then you, they would, he would answer after he prayed, Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. So something along the lines of that, he confessed the sins of his self and the sins of his family. Then leaving that bowl for a few moments, he would turn to the two goats that were nearby. So he'd walk over to the goats that were nearby. He would then cast lots over the goats. One was designated for Jehovah. The other was designated as a scapegoat. And a piece of crimson wool would be tied to the horns of the scapegoat. Then the goats were left standing together. And the high priest now turned to the bull, and he sacrificed the bull. Next, he filled the censer with the burning coals from the altar burnt offerings. And then he entered, at this point, the Holy of Holies where he poured two handfuls of incense on the coal so that a cloud of incense covered the mercy seat. Uh, Leviticus 16, 12 to 13. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. They have that cloud covering the mercy seat. Next, he would exit the Holy of Holies. He obtained some of the bull's blood he had sacrificed, which he then sprinkled on the mercy seat and seven times on the ground before the cover. 
and he shall take the bu- the take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat. Then upon the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood of his finger seven times. Leviticus sixteen fourteen. Now after this, he went out and he sacrificed the goat that was designated for Jehovah, and he performed the same ritual again and walked back into the holy holies and performed the same ritual again. Upon leaving, he would take the blood of the bull and the goat. He put on the horns of the altar. He sprinkled the altar seven times to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. Then came the most joyous part of the ceremony. The priest laid, he laid, he laid both hands on the head of the scapegoat. <clears throat> and then he confessed sins. His sins, the sins of the country, sins of the nation, all the iniquities of the children of Israel. And all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. Leviticus 16.21. And we know what that's picturing. That's what's getting me choked up. The goat was then led away into the desert amidst the jeering and the cheering of the people. Our sins have been placed on that and they're being, they're, they're being taken out. After this, the high priest put off his white garments. The pressure was off at this point. Can you imagine how he felt when this was done? I did all this. I did it right. The Lord has not struck me dead. You know, praise the Lord. He put off his white garments. He arrayed himself in those gorgeous, beautiful robes. He completed a few other offerings that were required. What an incredible ritual. What an incredible ritual. This was the Old Covenant at its apex. This was the paramount point of the Old Covenant. The tabernacle so rich. Uh, an ornament and meaning, uh, a ritual taught both the holiness of God and the depth of man's sins. And that no one could enter God's presence without the shedding of blood. It was a one-of-a-kind ritual. It stood alone in the world's religions. There has never been anything else that's even come close to anything like that. But with all of this, all the ritual, all the beautifulness of it, the tapestries, the, the, the things that it represent, the precious metals involved, the, the, the once a year part of it, the holy and everything involved in it, even with all of that that's involved in that, it was inadequate. It was inadequate. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain and demonstrate was the inadequacy of the Old Testament. Something new was needed. Something new was needed. Man needed something new. Man needed something better. Man needed something superior to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was inadequate. Man needed something new, something better, something superior. If you look with me back to Hebrews chapter 9, we're looking at verses 6 to 10. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second with the high priest alone once every year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of reformation. The ordinary priests who officiated daily entered the tabernacle to perform their ritual uh, duties according to the law, 
They burned incense morning and evening on the golden altar of incense. They put oil in the golden candlestick. The showbread, they made sure that was changed every week like it was supposed to. And only on that one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, did the high priest enter the most holy place through the Holy of Holies. Real freedom of access to God came only by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It takes Jesus to get that real access to God. It is through Jesus that we can have access to God. It is through our personal relationship with Jesus that we have access to God. The Levitical offerings and sacrifices never removed that guilt permanently. They only pointed to a way of the coming one, the coming one perfect sacrifice that could permanently remove that guilt and that sin. The animal sacrifices could not accomplish that. Man desperately needed something new, something better, something superior, and that something that was needed was Christ, Jesus, and the new covenant. Christ is what man needs. The gospel is what man needs. Salvation through Christ as part of the new covenant is the answer to mankind's need. Man needed a permanent answer to a sin problem, and that answer came in the form of Jesus Christ and his finished work and sacrifice. Now, the tabernacle, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It, the types and pictures were beautiful, but they were only temporary until the new covenant was, came in. So the new covenant was inaugurated, and when Christ himself offered himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. All the previous shadows and types fulfilled in the new covenant, nothing was left unfulfilled. All the ceremonial cleansing associated with Judaism has now been laid aside. Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant has been perfectly fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31, 31. The Lord fulfilled that promise by which we can now be saved through his son, Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, the payment in full for our wages of our sin. Now this brings us to our next point. We saw how inadequate the old covenant was. Now let's look at how adequate or the adequacy of the new covenant. When Jesus Christ came, everything changed. His atoning sacrifice changed our relationship with God, how we could approach God. Look at verses 11 to 14. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For with the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. How much more by the blood of Christ, the blood of God's own son. We now, we now, we get to begin that, that the good things have come. Uh, we, we get to enjoy those good things, those blessings of the new covenant. The purpose of God becoming incarnate was, was fully achieved at Calvary. Uh, the unique and everlasting priesthood of Jesus Christ, and it was all sufficient. His once-for-all sacrifice was all that was needed, and that fulfilled all the meaning, all the significance, all the types, all the shadows, fulfilled everything of the Old Covenant and the priesthood. The moment Christ died on the cross, the thick curtain that divided sinful man from the presence of the Holy God was torn open, and a sinner had access to God. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of 
of the temple is written twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when a centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew 27, 50-54. Upon his death, that curtain ripped in twain from top to bottom. We have access directly to God through our mediator, Jesus Christ. No more sacrifices. The ultimate blood sacrifice has been paid for us. We can approach God. No more staying out in, in the part right by the uh, altar burnt offering. No more staying right there. No more, we can't go past that. No more, we can, uh, the priest can only go in a holy place, but not the holy of holies. We can go straight to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, a more perfect tabernacle. Look at, verses, look at verse 11. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. So what is this greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands? Some believe that to be Christ's glorified body, Christ's death opened the way into the presence of God in heaven. Others believe this greater and more perfect tabernacle is the perfect tabernacle that is found in heaven. I look at verse 24, Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Those two words, for us. It's appearing for us. If you really think and contemplate what that, those two words really mean, he's appearing for us. The perfect tabernacle is in heaven itself, of which the earthly tabernacle is a type. Our risen great high priest mediates in a far better sanctuary in the very presence of God himself. Now let's look at the blood of goats and the blood of Christ, verses 13 and 14. For at the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Goats, we know, were involved on the Day of Atonement. The writer of Hebrews draws a strong contrast between the blood of goats and the blood of Christ. A high priest entered the Holy of Holies with the blood of the bullock on his, for his own sins, and they returned with the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. Christ accomplished eternal redemption and perfect cleansing of conscience for the, believer, for the believing sinner with his own blood on the cross, where he died once and for all. No animal sacrifice could ever accomplish what Christ accomplished on the cross. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more shall the blood of Christ do for us than these pictures, these animal sacrifices? How much more shall the blood of Christ do for us? So I'm just going to wrap things up this morning. As I was studying this, I came across this little story I'm going to read here to, to, to help us wrap things up. Albert Speer was once interviewed about his last book on ABC's Good Morning America. Speer was with Hitler. He was a confidant of Hitler. Uh, he had a great technological genius, and he's credited keeping those Nazi factories humming uh, during World War II. In another era, it's thought he would have been an industrial giant. He was... The only one of 24 war criminals 
tried at Nuremberg who actually admitted his guilt. He spent 20 years in prison. The interviewer referred to a passage on one of Spears' earlier writings when interviewing about his last book. And the interviewer said this, You have said the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? And the look on Spears' face, according to his writer, was gut-wrenching. And he responded, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving a whole time as punishment, but I cannot do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. And then the interviewer pressed the point further. He said, you really don't think you'll be able to clear your conscience, be able to clear it totally? Albert Spears shook his head no and said, I don't think it will ever be possible. For 35 years, Albert Spear had accepted complete responsibility for his crimes. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings uh, to others to avoid his moral sins. He desperately wanted and sought expiation, all to no avail. How tremendously sad for forgiveness was available to him in the blood of Jesus Christ. For the Apostle Paul himself was responsible for the death of numerous Jews in his quest for the purity in the Jewish religion. And look at how he was able to find forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb. Look at how God was able to use Paul with the past Paul had. We can be forgiven from any and every sin. Forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is freely offered. Will we accept that forgiveness? Will we seek that forgiveness? Will we then in turn, after we've received that forgiveness, will we make something of our life? Will we live our life well for the Lord? Will we let the, life, let the Lord use us for him? This man, Albert Speer, lived in a tortured, guilt-plagued life for 35 years. And forgiveness was available in the blood of Jesus Christ. He literally could have had that new conscience without the slightest sense of that guilt. Christ could have given him something new, a new life, a new outlook. A new spirit, the Holy Spirit could have indwelled him. His sins could have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 1.5. You can have a clear conscience if you want one. The offer is for everyone. If you've not yet come to Christ, the offer still stands today as it's always stood. If you're wondering how to come, perhaps one more story to help you. Charles Simeon. And one of the greatest preachers of England explained his coming to Christ like this. As I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sins to the head of their offering. The thought came into my mind, what may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me, an offering that I may lay all my sins on his head, then God willing, I will not bear them on my own, on my soul, one moment longer. And accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. If you want access to Christ and forgiveness of your sins and a new conscience, prayerfully imagine Christ standing before you. Lay your sins on him. Lay your sins on him. If you really imagine that and imagine your sins you're laying on him, that really tears you up. 
what I've laid on him. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious, till not a spot remains. What glorious benefits we have from the new covenant. We have unlimited access, hinted at so beautifully by the tabernacle and all of its ceremonies. All that is shadow. Now we have the substance. Ephesians 2, 6-7 hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. It's all through Christ. What more could we ask for for, for forgiveness of our sins and, and that clear conscience? And we have exactly that in Christ. It's through Christ and what he's done for us, so beautifully pictured in a tabernacle worship. Won't you come to him? Seek that forgiveness. Let him cleanse you from your sins. Lay your sins on Jesus.